The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Wow. I don't know if I can live up to that. <laughs> I was sitting here this morning and just reflecting that the first time I came here was almost 12 years ago. And for those of you who are relatively new here, you may not know that the community hall floor was actually black and white linoleum tile. And um, it's really fantastic to be here today. And, um, you know, every time I'm here, I'm just amazed at how much dharma there is and how many offerings there are in programs and opportunities to connect and practice. Um, So it's great to be here. Wonderful to see all of you. I wanted to um, talk a little bit about the Brahma Viharas today and um, maybe a, a little bit of perspective of how I've worked with them. So for, so, for those of you who um, may not know what the Brahma Viharas are, or maybe that's a foreign term, um, it's, a, it's a term that loosely translated might be called the divine abodes, or um, maybe the dwellings of Brahma. So Vihara is a loose translation for for an abode or a house or a or a place that that one would come to, and um, so a Brahma Vihara, some place where Brahma would live. And you might think, wow, that's pretty fantastic, right? And um, so these are wholesome states of mind. Sometimes they're called sublime qualities of heart and mind. And um, there are four states that the Buddha describes. And these are metta, or loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, I think when I first learned, I think it was called sympathetic joy. And uh, upeka, equanimity. So, um, as I've practiced, I've come to see that these four states, these four sublime states, are in a way both fruit and path of practice. That is, as, as we work with these different states, as we learn to cultivate these different states, as we become familiar with them, that they mature and in their maturation they become the fruit of our practice. But they're also opportunities for us to explore our own practice. They're in a way a mirror of how our practice is maturing. And um, you might think of, you know, fruit, sometimes we think, okay, that's a result, it's something that I get. But you might think of a fruit tree. 
where a fruit tree continues to give you fruit, to nourish you, to sustain you. So it's not just you get one fruit, but when the tree has matured, you get lots of fruit, and, and it keeps bearing fruit. So I like to think of these, these states as something that we can nurture, we can cultivate, we can um, grow. And in the growing of them, we start to get some of these fruits, and they start to nourish us, but they continue to nourish and, and um, support us in our practice. So this last year I've been um, focusing a lot of energy into teaching compassion. I recently completed a teacher certification at Stanford to do compassion cultivation training. And um, in some way that's really deepened my, my appreciation and my practice with these four different states. And... Uh, I remember first encountering these different uh, qualities as phrases that would be, um, you know, recited over and over again. You know, phrases like, may you be happy, or may you be safe, or may you be at ease. And um, sometimes we encounter those as, as concentration practices as phrases that we we use to bring the mind to stillness. And there are different states of heart that we can cultivate, that we evoke towards a loved one, towards ourselves, towards maybe neutral others, and then we start to expand out to difficult people in our lives and to the whole world. And when I first connect or when I first um, heard of these different states, it was really hard for me to connect with them. You know, just saying the phrases, just repeating the phrases in my mind seemed really kind of dry and very rote. And I just, you know, it was like, oh, it, it does, I couldn't really find that connection. And, um, you know, in, in doing this compassion work, it's just really uh, enriched my connection with these different states. And I think um, what I want to share with you today is maybe a little bit of this relationship that I have with them and maybe to inspire you to, to, um, to look into these a little more and to bring them into your practice life. So one of the things that I want to say up front is, is that in order for us to develop these states of heart and mind, mindfulness is foundational. It's like the the ground floor. It's like the ground under which all of these things can can start to grow and start to flourish. And it's the skill that's required to just acknowledge and see what's happening, what's happening now in a very simple way. And sometimes I think of it as being radically honest about what's happening in in our inner landscape. Um, And sometimes when we're radically honest, it's not pleasant and it's not pretty. And for me, 
it's connecting to these heart states of kindness and compassion that make a huge difference that help me to not want to run away or turn away from what I might think are, you know, difficult. Things that are maybe uh, what I don't want to see, what I don't want to be with, the suffering that's really there. And so rather than trying to suppress it or attack it or resist it or try to get away from it or being in conflict with it, um, bringing these Brahma-vihara qualities really helped me to stay present, to really develop an intimate relationship with suffering. And I think that's one of the things that the Buddha taught, right? He said, I teach one thing, suffering and the ending of suffering. And, um, and so it takes courage to meet our suffering. And uh, I was reminded recently that the word courage, um, the heart of that word is cour, which is in French means heart. So how do we bring our heart to meet the suffering? And, uh, you know, sometimes we can think of compassion or kindness. Sometimes we have this image that it's kind of wimpy or weak, but actually it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to meet the suffering that we have inside. So the first Brahma-vihara, metta, or loving-kindness, is a state that has a quality of just simple warmth and kindness. And sometimes we can get a little confused with the word loving in there and, and get maybe uh, a different feel. And, and I want to maybe offer a way to connect with that. So maybe just for a moment, close your eyes if your eyes aren't closed. <clears throat> and imagine or think of seeing maybe a very good friend or someone you deeply respect, or maybe a beloved pet. And connect with the feeling that you get in seeing that person that's dear. And allow yourself to really embody that, to really Connect with what does that feel like in the body when you think of that person or that dear one. Notice any sensations of warmth or comfort, tenderness, kindness, openness around the heart space. And then when you're ready, you can just gently open your eyes. But it's that very simple quality. It, it's not that, that kind of... Um, it's not a tightening or a closing of the heart, but it's just a simple, open, soft, warm quality. You know, you might think of 
when you see someone that you like and you want to give them a big hug. And it's a little bit like that. Or it's seeing someone that you deeply respect and maybe you don't give them a hug, but you have this, this kind regard for them. It's as simple as that. It, it doesn't have to have any kind of attachment or any kind of clinging to it. It's very clean, but very simple. Sometimes when we try to evoke that quality, other things can come up. Maybe there's some frustration or some irritation, or maybe there was a little bit of resistance when I suggested that, or maybe you're like, oh, I can't think of anybody or anything that I can connect to. And I think it's really healthy to, to acknowledge and, and accept what comes up. You know, sometimes we get this idea, it's not okay to have something other than loving-kindness arise when we're trying to cultivate it. And we can uh, end up resisting or contracting or in some way being in conflict with what's arising in our experience. And, uh, and I think that's really important that as we do these uh, practices that um, we, get, we maybe get something different. You know, we talk about compassion or we talk about kindness or we talk about empathetic or appreciative joy or we talk about equanimity and what comes up is frustration or anger or other states of mind. And it's not wrong. That, for me, is where my practice starts to really come alive. Rather than trying to get rid of or deny or suppress those states, just like the practice that we have with our breath, it's a process of remembering. The Pali word that we often use Uh, or gets translated into the word mindfulness, is sati. And actually, sati, some scholars might suggest that the meaning is closer to remembering or recollecting, right? And so we sit here in our practice, and we keep remembering to come back to the breath or to whatever object of attention there is. And... So in the moment that something is arising, maybe anger, maybe frustration, maybe grief, maybe sadness, I can remember an intention towards loving kindness or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity. That these are things that just like the breath, we can remember. And in the remembering, we bring that intention back. And just like the breath, it doesn't mean that we use a sledgehammer or that we force something to happen. And in the practice of these heart states, doing something like that, you know, Forcing something to happen is not kind. 
It's actually contrary to what it is that we're trying to cultivate. So what I tried to bring to that moment, if there's suffering there, if there's some unwholesome state, is, is there a way that I can hold what's arisen in the arms of kindness or in the arms of compassion and the arms of equanimity? Is there a way that I can somehow um, just remember my intention? And in the remembering of the intention, it starts to soften whatever's there. It starts to soften the impatience, the anger, the irritation. So I don't have to fix anything. All I have to do is just hold it carefully and let it change, let it dissolve or let it relax or let it dissipate. It's like giving it a larger space to be in. Just like following the breath, when the mind drifts away, the moment we notice we've lost the breath, we just remember the intention that we had to stay with the breath. We don't have to yank the breath back. In fact, the mind already starts to go back to the breath because it remembers. And simply returning to the breath is an act of kindness, of self-compassion, to the relentless torment of our thoughts, our worries, our concerns, our fears. So working with the Brahma Viharas in this way, I find that the heart immediately softens and makes space to help face whatever is unpleasant or challenging with less aversion. One way that I think of it is, is it's a little bit like if you had a cup of coffee and you drop a drop of cream in it, it automatically starts to change the coffee without doing anything just by dropping that little bit of cream in. So I don't have to get rid of the coffee. All I have to do is just add a drop. It's this intention that's so important to come back. What I found for myself and as I teach compassion, um, you know, it may be easy to invoke loving-kindness for a loved one, but often it's really challenging, really hard to evoke loving-kindness for ourselves. Loving-kindness and self-compassion. Ajahn Suchito, in his book Parami, Ways to Cross Life's Flood, says this. He says, metta, loving-kindness, is non-aversion but it's also non-fascination and non-projection. It releases others from being the objects of our projections, lust, and idealism. It allows others to not be the way I want them to be for me. True love for another 
means that you don't appropriate someone or project your unfulfilled wishes or needs onto them. Instead, metta means recognizing otherness and feeling that it's okay. We don't have to make people the same as ourselves or judge ourselves based on what we think about other people. We don't have to feel we have to win them over or feel that they should satisfy our emotional hunger. And when metta is fully developed, it can allow us to be with the irritating and the unfair and the messy, such that perceptions no longer even take hold. It's the same for ourselves. When we hold ourselves with the mind of goodwill, we don't have to feel intimidated and compelled to prove ourselves. We have all been small, weak, and stupid. We have all been totally irresponsible infants, awkward adolescents, made a mess of things, lied, cheated, and maybe even killed. Yet we changed. We can accept the presence of the petty-mindedness, the guilt and anxiety as visitors conditioned into the mind, and work with them. Then there is nothing to hide from or dread anymore. This is, more, this is a more useful approach than going through another round of anguish, self-hatred, and defensiveness. By stilling these reactions, metta enables us to penetrate to and remove the, re- the root cause of ill will, often towards ourselves, underneath the complexes. I love that. What I found that is that paying attention to the state of heart begins to clue me in to when I start taking things personally, when I start attaching to things as I, me, or mine. It becomes a barometer to me around the attachment for wanting someone or something to be a certain way, my way, or what I want or that I think something or someone is mine as a possession. Releasing this attachment to getting my way, getting what I want, having someone be a certain way, opens the gate to kindness. So just for a moment, I want you to close your eyes again. And contemplate seeing yourself as truly deserving happiness. Of truly appreciating yourself. And wishing yourself well. What would it be like to accept yourself just as you are? Not the improved version of who you hope to be in the future. But right now, in this moment, 
to truly offer wishes of goodwill and kindness to yourself. What comes up for you? Self-judgment? A sense of unworthiness? Or can you really offer a genuine goodwill So when you're ready, you can open your eyes. In my early practice days, I would often turn away or reject those parts of me that I saw as imperfect or bad or unacceptable. And in a way, I wasn't allowing myself to be whole because I was refusing parts of me Refusing parts of me to be here, all here. So self-kindness and self-compassion are essential to accepting ourselves just as we are in this moment without having to think of, I have to get to some new improved version 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0. We have to be willing to see ourselves with our warts and all without launching into aversion, self-hate, self-judgment. In a way, I see it as a maturation or a deepening of the mindfulness process that these qualities of heart really create and widen the space for mindfulness to see what's there without launching into self-criticism and self-judgment. Pema Chodron says this of genuine compassion. Genuine compassion comes from the fact that you see your own limitations. You wish to be kind and you find that you aren't kind. Then instead of beating yourself up, you see that that's what all human beings are up against. And you begin to have some kind of genuine compassion for the human condition. And you see how challenging it is to be a human being. You try to be peaceful and never raise your voice. And you find out that you have a lot of rage. The Dharma is about making friends with the groundlessness and discomfort of those feelings. It's not about making rules so that those emotions never arise. I see compassion as that necessary ingredient for all of our practice and all of our relationships with the world. In compassion training, we learn to hold this idea of both and rather than either or. And often in in our practice, we have this either or mind. You know, I have to get rid of this in order to get that. You know, I have to get rid of my thoughts so I can have a peaceful mind. It's quite insidious. We don't notice that this kind of mindset starts to creep in. 
And then we start to judge ourselves for being wrong or something's wrong with me. Instead, can we learn to hold the opposites? Just the willingness to hold the opposite changes it. Just like that cup of coffee, being willing to just be present for what arises, a willingness to open to it with kindness begins to soften it. So if I'm angry, can I also just hold the intention or the wish or remember, oh, I have an intention to be kind. I have an intention to be compassionate. That moment that I remember already changes the equation. I don't have to do anything. The heart starts to soften because I remember, oh, I want to be kind. It brings a moment of pause to whatever it is that I'm about to do. I feel that good practice is just this, creating a kind, open, welcoming container for our experience just as it is. That kind openness immediately changes the experience. For example, if I don't want something and I contract, the contraction exaggerates the suffering. We all know how when there's pain in the body and we contract, it makes the pain actually get worse. But if I can somehow bring an intention to open to it, and I don't resist, there's a way that I can meet the suffering and I can feel the ouch of it. And it's that feeling the ouch that allows compassion to come in. That moment of going, this is painful. And if we don't get in our way, if we don't get into the thoughts, the heart, the body actually naturally wants to say, oh, oh, that's, that's really hard. Compassion right there arises. So it's just allowing the natural quality of the heart to soothe and to step forward. It's all about just accepting me in this moment. We start to see that nothing's wrong with me. It's just allowing. This is what it is to be a human being. Oh, that hurts. Oh, it's just like this. And doing that in that moment gives me some freedom, some space that allows me to drop the narrative and to open to the heart's response, to meet this moment as it is kindly, without being in contention, without saying, it's not supposed to be like this. I shouldn't be this way. I I ought to be this other way. So 
the third Brahma Vihara is mudita, appreciative joy. And it's the joy that arises when the heart is open to experience someone else's joy or good fortune. And this is a place where it can be easy to feel the opposite, to feel envy and jealousy and a sense of lack or a sense of not having enough, not being enough. And if I have that attachment, if I have some attachment to feeling like I don't have enough or I'm not enough, then in order for true joy to arise in response to someone else's joy, I have to, I have to actually allow and accept those feelings. Because otherwise they're going to block me. They're going to be right in my face going, I wish I had that. Oh, I, I want that. Why don't I have that? So it's really to meet that. To not say, oh, I have to get rid of that so I can feel true joy, because that's really there. I have to see that pain, that ouch of envy or jealousy. To recognize it, let the compassion come up and meet it and go, wow, that's really hard. That's really difficult. And then if I can do that and compassion can come in, then there's kindness and warmth that helps the heart open. Maybe enough so that I can see that this person, just like me, deserves joy and happiness. that I don't have to get attached to my lack to feel joy for someone else. Compassion gives me that opening to see that not only am I challenged, but all of us, we are all challenged. And in the moment of that recognition of all of us being human beings, trying to live this human being, imperfect, flawed existence that we can transform suffering into joy. And finally, the last Brahma-vihara is equanimity. And it's a quality of heart and mind that's unruffled by the worldly winds the ups and downs of life, the gains, the losses, the praise, the blame. And this quality requires us to give up running away, to conditionally accept what is here in this moment, to see it clearly and not frantically try to fix or change it, but to open to it with a heart of kindness, with compassion, when it's hard, mudita, when it's joyful, and to allow for it without attachment, without aversion, 
to change, to let it change when it inevitably will. Compassion is the experience that allows us to come close to our own suffering and to be intimate with it, to not run from it. It helps us to see that all of us as human beings experience suffering in all of its many forms as sadness or as anger or as grief, as fear, as anxiety, as impatience, irritation. We see that we're not unique and our suffering's not personal. Each one of us knows those qualities. And the more we begin to see it, The mind stops reacting to all of the trials and tribulations, the pulls, the tugs, all of the things that say, I'm important, you have to think about me now. It sees everything simply as it is without the drama. And so compassion in that way is the heart's response. You know, it's the heart's response to suffering when we're not caught up in our thinking about it. When we get out of the way and just let the heart respond to suffering, compassion arises. And our practice is to meet suffering intimately. We can't do that if we're pushing it away. We can't do that if we're trying to fix it. We can't do that if we're clinging to it. We have to meet it. And so compassion is that opening, that way to come in and go and touch it and say, ooh, ow, ooh, that hurts. The moment we get in the way, the heart contracts. It separates from our experience. It wants something to be other than it is. Compassion brings us closer to suffering, allows us to just touch it, to start to know it deeply. And we know and when we know it deeply, when we start to really touch it, then it's only natural for compassion and kindness to arise. In fact, that's the only thing that makes sense. So I'm going to end with a poem some of you may know well, but I think it really conveys this, and it's a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth what you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved. All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, 
You must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So I thank you for your kind attention this morning. May you take a little kindness and spread it out and let it ripple into the world. Thank you.